What's up, buddies? It's Concert Buddy. Thanks for tuning in for another edition of Vinyl Community Podcasts, either the audio version or if you're watching on my YouTube channel, Concert Buddy, B-U-D-D-I-E, on YouTube. I really appreciate you for taking your time to give this experience a shot. This particular episode is one I'm really excited to share with you. I took some time to sit down for a conversation with another member of the Vinyl Community on YouTube, Tone Scott. And of course, we're going to talk about record collecting and record collecting publicly on YouTube, all that kind of stuff in the vinyl community. But I also wanted to pick the brain of Tone for another reason, and that's because part of this series of conversations I'm doing calling Collecting from the Inside, Tone has a long and illustrious career in the recording and music industry. And so I was very curious to kind of see how that potentially influenced his collecting ways or his opinions of listening and hearing music and how he identifies you know, that type of experience on his level. All that said, I hope you're going to find this experience and this conversation really enjoyable. I did. Hopefully Tone did, too. I'm pretty sure he did. I'm going to leave links below for some more information, not only on this channel, but also he is a contributing editor to Goldmine Magazine. And if you've been collecting for any length of time, you're probably familiar with Goldmine. It's one of the longest running music publications, not just about record collecting, but music publications right up there with Rolling Stone in the world. And so Tone has a, I believe, bi-weekly contribution in two different columns for Goldmine. And it's really exciting stuff. So we get into all that. Anyway, long-winded way of saying, Tone Scott, great conversation coming up. And I appreciate you spending your time, your most valuable commodity, here listening and watching Vinyl Community Podcasts. Check it out. Welcome in to the Vinyl Community Podcasts. Welcome back, buddies. It's Concert Buddy back here on Vinyl Community Podcast. I have a wonderful guest today. If you're not familiar, you're going to get familiar real quick. One of my favorites on YouTube and, and somebody I've really enjoyed watching from that meeting, but also getting to know here lately uh, off of uh, YouTube, and we'll kind of get into that. It's Mr. Tone Scott. Tone, thanks for joining us. So, Chance, how you doing, bro? I'm doing real good. I'm really excited we can lock in this time and talk, man. I'm really excited to talk to you. Good. Yeah, it is. I've been looking so, forward to this. Awesome. The, the title of this piece is is Collecting from the Inside. And and we'll kind of get into your, your background because, you, you, like we talked about beforehand off camera, I think there's probably more question of what you haven't done in the industry versus <laughs> what you have done because it's, it's very robust. But uh, we'll kind of circle back to that. But let's, let's kind of kick it off. Where I learned about you and where I started to get to know you is YouTube and the YouTube vinyl community. Right, right. What uh, What – how did that start? Did you uh, were you kind of like me? Were you a lurker and watching other people's videos, and then decided, "Hey, I'm going to do this." And and if so, what were some of those channels that you used to watch that kind of uh, was a call to action to be like, "Yeah, I'm going to try this too," because I've got some some records, some CDs I want to talk about. Right, right. Well, I I kind of did lurk for a while. No, actually, not even that long. I lurked for a little while before I started to actually comment. So I would just kind of look, and it was surprising because I think I just happened upon it haphazardly. It wasn't like I was searching for other people to talk about records. I was just on YouTube and I think the first the first channel that I watched uh, I don't watch anymore but was um, Derek Higgins. Okay, yeah. That's where I kind of got introduced to 
the concept of the vinyl community. And when I realized it was a thing by watching his channel, because it was spoken about a lot, vinyl community, vinyl community, vinyl community. I was like, what the hell is the vinyl community? Sure. So I, I think I searched vinyl community and um, I found a few channels and it was early on. I mean, it was, you know, at least 10 years ago. Wow. So, okay. the vinyl, yeah, the vinyl community at that point had already been going from what I've researched and talked with people about, people like, you know, uh, Brandon, Mr. Hall of Fame, and some of the people who really pioneered the vinyl community. Channels like Memphis Vinyl, Jim and the Misses, you know, Jim and April aren't, aren't really doing videos anymore. You know, they were the pioneers. And those are some of the first channels that I started watching. Uh, Paul Wester. Brock Pita. When I started commenting, his channel was one of the ones that I believe I first commented on. Okay. And he started following me right away, even though at that time I didn't have any videos pertaining to vinyl community. It was just videos totally based on my career. Mm -hmm. It was jam-packed, you know, career stuff, studio sessions, whatever, concerts, whatever, backstage at a concert, whatever. He started following me. And he got familiar with me, and he's the one who kept nudging me and nudging me and nudging me and urging me, telling me, you got to make videos, you got to make videos. And I think I commented for like two, three years minimum before I even thought about making a video. Yeah. Cool. And so then what was it? Was it was there one thing, or was you were just drawn to want to try this for yourself? Were you looking for uh, more connection within the community? Because, you know, like, Commenting can get you so far, and you can connect in, in a, up to a level with certain creators. But I found once once you start doing it yourself, it's like a whole other level of connectivity, and you, you get exposed to to more creators and folks of different backgrounds and stuff, which we'll kind of talk about in a second. But was that your experience as well? Yeah, it was part of it. And I think, see, because up until that time, I mean, I've, I've been collecting records my my literally my entire life. My dad was a collector. You know, I kind of started out as a junior, you know, collector and whatnot. But even as a kid, I would take really good care of my records. I would take good care of my dad's records. I mean, it's, I collected. But to call myself a serious collector, you know, when I was a teenager, I, I was pretty much into the lifestyle of being a collector, sleeving my records, even back then. Oh, wow. uh, okay. Yeah. I mean, all of that stuff, you know, keeping the dust off and cleaning them properly researching how to clean them properly and back then of course as a kid there was no internet and so i had to get books and magazines and stereophile magazine and absolute sound and all of that stuff i would read because i could find out a bit about how to take care of records that way and, you know i was exposed to high-end audio as a kid because again my dad also was a stereophile and you know i got into high-end audio as a kid and i understood that sort of niche of of of, of being an, an audiophile or, or whatever yeah and, and um, but it was part of it. Up until that time, you could only really talk shop at the record store or with your buddies who were collectors, and you would just sit around and talk about records. You would have a listening sessions. you talk about records. When I stumbled uh, upon the vinyl community, it was like, okay, here's all of that talk shop at my fingertips. And it was like, it was great to comment, but I wanted to, you know, like I said, that was part of it. The other part of it was, I wanted to show off some records. <laughs> sure, I had yeah. fucking badass records in my collection, and I knew I could show stuff because the the high I got wasn't really 
showing off the records. It was being exposed to stuff that I didn't know about. Yeah. That's where my high came from because, yeah, I've been collecting for almost my entire life, but there's billions of records out there, and I don't know it all, and I loved learning. So I also wanted to be one to teach people as well and have somebody say, wow, I didn't know that. And so that kind of fueled the fire too. And that's kind of why I decided, you know what, Paul's right. Baraka Pito is right. I need to start making videos, and, and I did. <laughs> yeah, no, I, I hear you. And that's, I mean, I did a lot of lurking and a lot of learning, honestly. Being, through other people's videos, it was learning best practices, learning about, you know, different types of sleeves. You know, like I grew up collecting baseball cards, you know what I mean? So I, so I was already kind of predisposed to take care of your stuff. But right. am I am I doing it the best way? It, you know, learning about people. I had no idea people kept their records behind the jacket. You know what I mean? Like all those kind of things. But also exactly what you're talking about, Tone, is teaching things I've learned, not even from YouTube or not even from reading, you know, the, the forums or what have you, is sharing best practices. Because I think it goes both ways. Sometimes it's a very one-sided relationship with some particular channels, and, and that's fine. You know, they have different aims. But what I really like doubling down on is, the back and forth, the community piece, but also learning and sharing best practices because that's, to me, that's essential if you're really going to have something. Like you said, before the YouTube or internet or any of that stuff, the only place you could really talk shop is either with people you knew who were collectors or like people at the record store. So the ease and the, the access has definitely been something I think has really sprung the hobby forward. Yeah, and I'm glad you brought up best practices because even though that there there are many ways to care for your collection and your record and and some of it is subjective yep but there there are good ways and then there are you know better ways and so it's great to see how other people handle their collections yep. it's also great to see how people curate their collections because people curate differently too so it's for sure it's it's interesting and it's it's a, a, a learning experience to anybody who thinks that, that they're just a know-it-all and they've got it all down pat, you know, I don't think so. You can always learn, right? I mean, that's... Always learn from everybody. I learn from... I've learned stuff from you. Um, your channel... See, what I admire about you is what I've learned is, is, um, is how somebody... Who has been in it since such little time can become such a star. In the oh, come on. <laughs> I remember when you first kind of started in, and, and I'm like, okay, this guy, he, I don't know his name yet, but it's like, and I'm getting tired of calling him Buddy. <laughs> but I watched you really shoot your channel or shoot, it's, it's not even about subscribers, but just shoot your notoriety because I think you're very well respected. So, you know, that's, I'm, I'm like, okay, that's, that, that's a great way to do it because I haven't really focused on growing my channel. I've just focused on putting out videos when I want to. Um, and I, I try to give more and more, not like I'm thinking people are craving more and more of tone, but only because I want the interaction. I love the interaction. I want people to watch my videos. And anybody, again, who says, oh, I don't care if anyone watches my videos or not, you're, you're just a liar. <laughs> no, everybody wants people to watch their videos or else they wouldn't be doing it i want people to watch because i want the camaraderie yes. so um yeah so that's that's what that's about that's no 100 percent. took the words out of my mouth because 
I think it's easy to get caught up in the analytics of this YouTube thing about subscriber count and views and all that. But to me, right. I think that's, I'm sure that's part of it because we do want to be seen because why else, you know, we're not getting paid to do this. I don't know about you. I'm not getting paid for it. Right. But, no, but it's not, not on this channel, but not, a, <laughs> yeah. but, but, talk, but it's talk about something in a minute that, that, that again, I'm, I'm going to be revealing some things. So perfect. Yeah. No, but, but, but the camaraderie is the main thing. That's the thing that I would say in, in a year plus of doing the video piece, doing the YouTube, my face on camera, outside right. of the trolls, you know, you learn everything, right? But I would sure. say that the biggest learning was that reach that you're talking about, right? Because I've tried to, I've tried, I've, I've actually have learned more new channels in the last, let's call it 15 to 18 months from doing YouTube and videos myself than I did in the previous five to eight years of just lurking and watching videos, right? So I, and that's been, to me personally, it sounds like the same to you. It's been more rewarding that piece of the connection and getting to know people, especially when you get to meet up with people. Like I know Brandon and you met up. Brandon's, you know, 15 minutes down the road from me. You know what I mean? But but meeting up with people is like, it's, it's just awesome. Yeah, it is. It, and, and I've made, you know, bona fide tangible friendships. You know, people who I've put my arms around. Yep. People who yep. given hugs, given handshakes to, you know, sat, you know, face to face, had meals with, um, spend countless hours on the phone with, um, spend countless hours sending messages or emails or, I mean, I, I have bona fide tangible friendships now over all of this time and it's, it's great. And there are people who I don't have bona fide, you know, tangible friendships with that I, I would love to meet up with. Sure. And create a friendship with because I like them as people. They I gel with their personality, and they would be great people to to know. You know, so like, well, I'm glad you. Brought, I'm glad you. Brought, <laughs> well, same. So I'm glad you brought that up because one thing I've noticed, and and this is me saying it, right, is that in a, a fair criticism or a fair observation of of the vinyl community on YouTube is it's dominated in volume by older white guys, right? Like we. We're, we're, we could do a way better, we could do a significantly better job as a community of being more inclusive to people of color, to women. I know a couple of years ago, there was a dust up about, you know, some controversy about women in the vinyl community don't know what they're talking about, all that kind of stuff, right? So yeah. <laughs> how, do you, how do you see it? Do you, do you agree like that we should be more inclusive and, and need to be, be more diverse? And then how do we get there? Because I try to, if it's a new channel, if it's a small channel, if it's a, a a channel by a person of color or a woman or whatever, like I do try, at least myself, this is my own practice, I do try to like reach out and connect and comment and, 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 and bring them along. But how would you view that whole experience? Do you think that's a fair criticism or observation? Sort of. It's kind of funny that you say that because, you know, two of the pioneers of this whole thing are black. That's right, Derek. Yeah. <laughs> Brandon. Oh, yeah, that's right. Yeah. Brandon, too. Yeah, yeah. Um, so yeah, it, but I, I mean, I, I think it's really weird and I think it's a, it's a false stereotype, although it seems to be reality. It, it seems to be reality in the vinyl community. I think in terms of being a record collector in general, I think there's a false stereotype sure. and it's that, that it's just mostly older white guys. My dad certainly wasn't an older white guy. Yeah, of course. Neither am I. <laughs> um, I mean, I'm, I'm half. My mom's my mom's Italian, and, and, and I'm like a dad's side black and Puerto Rican. But it, it seems that way on the vinyl community. I can be in any record store. I can be in Amoeba, yep. and there's just as many Asian people as there are white people. There are just as many 
black people on the ground, you know, sitting Indian style, digging underneath the bins, than there as there is white people. There's just as many girls in there as there is guys. Um, it is it is male dominated. That is something that I don't think is is a wrong uh, cliche. It's it mm. definitely male dominated. Um, but I think more and more women are doing it. I would like to see more and more women who, and I'm going to get a lot of shit for this, but I'm going to say it anyway. More and more women who really know what they're talking about. Okay. Because the females that I have noticed are millennial age girls who, God bless them, they're getting into it. Somebody in their family exposed them to it. Their dad, their mom, their uncle, uh, who their their girlfriend's dad is a collector, whoever. Yep. And or maybe they stumbled across stuff online and they got interested in it. And that, however, you want to get going, that's great. I fault no one. The more, the better. We want people to be collectors and to be music aficionados, so that. The independent record store does not die. That's my main focus, and we Definitely. can get into about that later. But, um, but I would like to see more women who really have a deep knowledge, like a lot of the males do. Um, and there's just, unfortunately, from my perspective, it, you know, whoever's watching this, please don't flame me through this. It's just the truth. There's just not a lot of women who, quote unquote, know what they're talking about. Um, to the extent that they feed me because I'm looking to be, I'm looking to be fed okay. or that, that interests me to the level that, um, I feel there's camaraderie. Um, I'll just name a couple who I, I think have a good knowledge of, 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 of music and collecting. One is Rachel, sure. Rachel, Rachel does. and the other would be Hannah. Omaha Omaha. Okay. Yep. Neither of them purport to be any expert. In fact, H Hannah will tell you straight up, I'm not an expert. I'm not. She, I've seen her put it on Instagram many times. I'm not an expert, but Hannah's got some fucking really good knowledge. Her 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 tastes are a little more pinpointed in terms of the genres that she collects and listens to. But her knowledge within that is something that I respect and I've learned from. So you know, those two are two, and there there could be more. I just don't follow a lot of the women. Just the same for guys. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You got, it's got to be reciprocal. You've got it. Like you use a good word, feed. Like it's got it's got to like nourish you or or sustain you from a collecting lens, from a knowledge share, from like you said in the jump is learning things from people and be like, wow, that that that, that kind of vibe is that fair being fed. Yeah, being fed. And again, it goes the same for guys. It's just that there's more men than there are women. So it's a numbers right. In juxtaposition is, you know, it's light years apart. I, I would love to see more women who have a really deep knowledge because I'm sure that there are a lot out there. I would just like no to doubt. See so you, you kind of you said this a couple times about your dad kind of being the collector that that you were uh, literally probably following around on some of his his digs, his his hunting for records. Um, it's always interesting how people kind of get into this through oftentimes a family member, oftentimes. Uh, you know, a certain type of music or an artist that they really get into, right? So all that said, let's talk about like, your actual collection and your collecting history because you said you've been collecting very early on. Um, how, you know, obviously, how did it start and where do you find yourself now? Have you, have you ever quantified like what your collection is size-wise, records, CDs, you name it? I collect primarily, I, I collect 
LPs and seven and singles. I collect uh, cassette albums. I'm a huge proponent for audio tape. Um, coming from an audiophile or a stereophile standpoint, um, if you have an incredibly good deck, tape, and you have a very well produced and mastered um, cassette album, it will blow away any vinyl record. It will murder any vinyl record in comparison to that, that album. And taking it even a step further, if you have a reel-to-reel, -reel, a reel-to-reel -reel will, will murder any format, period. The reel-to-reel -reel format has made a comeback, but un unfor unfortunately, it's so expensive. Sure. It's so massively expensive that only guys who can yeah. throw down $10,000 for on a turntable. Now I have a turntable that's worth 13 grand, but did I pay 13 grand for it? No, because I don't have the money to pay 13 grand on a turntable. Sure. But guys who can just go write a check for that stuff. Those are the guys who are collecting modern day, currently produced and very sparsely produced new reel to reel albums. Those albums are going for two, three, four, $500 an album. Mm-hmm just normal prices. So those, if, if anyone ever has the chance to listen to that format or to invest in a really high-end deck, which would be uh, the most modern high-end Marantz decks, the most modern high-end Nakamichi decks, which would be mid to late 90s, maybe early 2000s max, those decks right there, the Marantz SD72 Gold Series decks are one of the best decks you can ever buy. You get a great tape and you play it in that deck, it will blow away your entire vinyl collection. Mm. It's just, that's what tape is. It's, it's, it's unbelievable. So I collect all those formats, and then I, I collect little tiny things. Like um, I have a great flexi-disc collection. Fascinated with flexi-discs. Okay. I subscribe to things like, I don't know if you're familiar with Vinyl Post. Not familiar. Okay, so Vinyl Post is a flexi-disc um, subscription service okay. that puts flexi-disc or puts a single on a postcard size flexi with all kinds of extras. And they launch new independent sort of uh, dream pop, pop rock, indie, indie bands or indie groups or indie performers that this is their only exposure on a record and, and, and they, they scour these artists and they release them through vinyl posts. And it's great getting all of these new, new artists who are trying to do something on a record. And uh, I get it in the mail every month. And, uh, and I seek out anytime I find a flexi disc in a record store, I snatch it up. So that's one thing. I also collect three inch uh, compact disc singles. If you remember oh. those. Yeah, that's that's real old school. Interesting. So I've been I've been heavy into that for probably about ten years um, because I had them as a kid when they were first out. Sure. Uh, the problem with that is they're massively expensive. You know, I think they're exploited a bit because I don't think that they should cost what they do. But you could spend anywhere from fifteen to one hundred fifty bucks on a three inch. Wow. Compact, just very, so sounds very niche, right? It's a, it's a certain type of buyer and, and listener, yeah. Extremely niche, and I do it just for the collectability of it. Um, I'm kind of getting into mini disc. I won't have that in the main part of my hi-fi system, 
but there is a lot of cool stuff put out on mini disc and I'm trying to I, I, I locked down a mini disc player I had a long time ago. I locked one down and now I'm starting to kind of seek out mini discs just as kind of like a little side thing, you know. Interesting. But my but the main formats are of course vinyl LP, uh, cassette album, compact disc album, and then I have a very very um, very choosy with my twelve inch singles. I do collect twelve inch singles, but they have to be either extremely nostalgic or be something that's very rare. And then I'll, I'll bring it into um, that. I have about um, LP wise right around forty two hundred LPs. Mm. About 2,700 compact discs, albums, about 800 cassette albums, and about a little over uh, 1,000 745 RPM symbols. Love it. I love hearing those numbers. That just means I got more more room to climb. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, and that's the beauty of it, man. I don't think that people realize the beauty, the, the, the pinnacle of beauty of being a collector or just collecting, and that is... It will never end. I don't care how long you live. It will never and how much money that you have. It will never end. Yes, it's, it's very, it's very ingrained. It's very a part of your psyche and and part of your personality too, right? Like it could be, and sometimes, well, yeah, maybe, what I, maybe it'll shift, right? Yeah, but what I mean by never end is there's so much media out there that you sure. could never collect it all. You, you, it would be impossible to collect it all. So it's a hobby that will never exhaust itself unless you yourself get tired of it. That's fair. Yeah, I, I know when I, I got real serious about record collecting, particularly LPs, I had I had this really wild-haired idea that, because I love Huey Lewis and the New Sports. It's an album that when I was a hey. kid, it's one of, the, one of my first albums I, I can remember as a kid my mom had, and so I have that personal connection to it. So I really thought... That's a, that's a really good album. It's actually... Sonically and production-wise and writing-wise, it's really a fantastic record. Yeah, but but I and and I didn't realize this going in. But this is back when you could get records at, for a song at flea markets at uh, antique places. So I, I thought early on, I'm like, I'm going to get every single copy of Huey Lewis and the New Sports, not realizing really what that entailed, and not also realizing they sold millions and millions of copies of that. So I, I've got a, a hearty. Hardy start, but I don't think I'm going to ever, but you know what I mean? Like those kind of things like really are, I, I laugh about it now, but at the time I was really ambitious. Like anytime I would see a copy, it's got to come home. But now yeah. as prices have escalated, like that's just not reasonable. But anyway, no, I love it. Um, so, so let's talk about kind of the, the, the crux of this conversation, what I'll call collecting from the inside. Okay. And for folks who, have watched your channel or may not be familiar with your channel. You've got a, a wide range of experiences in, in the actual music industry. Um, and, and I really want to lean in and we'll get into the gold mine stuff in particular, but if you could kind of just educate the audience, just a very high level, like what kind of stuff you've been involved in and, and stuff that you're really proud of or, or, or things that uh, people may not know about you. We've discussed this before, obviously. Yep. And I, I'm not ashamed to let people know. I, just, I wasn't sure if I was going to bring this up. But before I started making videos, my entire YouTube channel was just, it was career-based. And when I decided to make, started, start to make YouTube, um, round community videos, I decided that I was going to pull all of that down. Because contrary to popular belief, people who have been fortunate enough, if you want to call it that, to perpetuate a career in this business don't like talking about it. It's very, it's something that we, we, 
we do and hate to be questioned about. I agreed with you that we would talk about a little bit more problem. And the reason being is because sometimes it creates animosity. Definitely. Um, it can create a situation where people think that you're, you're being braggadocious or you're being, you're trying to, for lack of better words, floss. You're trying to um, say, hey, look at me. And it's just better not talking about it, not bringing it up. I, in, in the entirety of the time that I've had my channel revolving around VC videos, uh, I've mentioned it sporadically, extremely sporadically, only when it was relevant to something I was showing or something I was talking about. Other than that, other people have mentioned it more than I have. And it's just because I don't need the trolls, just being honest. I don't need the animosity. I don't need... Then listen, and I'll be, and I'm not going to name names, but there have been people. I'm not dumb. I, I'm, I'm a smart motherfucker. I really am. Um, I'm extremely intuitive, and I'm very discerning, and I can tell when someone doesn't like me. And there's been quite a few people. Um, not quite a few. There's been a tiny handful, tiny handful of people who have been very negative towards me because mm. of what I've purported or what other people have purported that I do for a living. Coincidentally, those people are now people I get along with. It's interesting. It's very interesting. And that just comes from finding some common ground and maybe making those people see that, hey, I'm, I'm not what you think I am or I'm not who you think I am or whatever. And then they, they, are, they begin to realize, hey, I like this guy. Hey, I have common ground with, with this guy. Maybe this guy wasn't full of shit because I looked him up or maybe I see what he's done mm -hmm. and he really is doing that. Maybe people just didn't believe it. I sure. thought I was just blowing smoke up people's ass or other people were blowing smoke for me. That's why I haven't talked about it a lot. That being said, getting that out there, um, I, I've been, I'm in my, just hit my mid forties. And I've been in, um, or almost my mid-40s, just I mean, uh, I've been a professional in this business for, since I was late 19s. Um, I was in veterinary medicine from 17 to 19. Oh. Yeah. I was a surgical technician straight out of high school, because in high school I was, I was a kennel assistant, and then the doctor, I started assisting in things, and the doctor was like, you have a knack for this, I'll pay for you. To go to school, it's going to take about a year and a half, but I'll pay for, for you to get your license. I actually did it in a year, and I was a surgery tech growing up. Ever since I was a young teen or even preteen, I knew what I wanted to do. I grew up in bands. I'm I, I'm a vocalist primarily. I play piano and guitar. My first instrument was a woodwind instrument. I play flute. Mm. Um, I play hand percussion, um, but primarily growing up was very early began to write songs and even earlier than that I sang and so growing up I was in bands towards the end of high school and out of high school I was in a group groups that were opening up for you know bands I opened up for even before I was 20 I opened up for Gap Band and R. Kelly and, and things like that and um, I knew what I wanted to do and it wasn't necessarily being a, an artist it was just being in the industry I just right. wanted to be in the industry that was making music. I wanted to be immersed in music and in the creation of music, whether it was an artist, um, and I really didn't even care about that, uh, whether it was at a record label, whatever the case may be, I just 
wanted to be involved with those people. Being in the uh, one day going from one hospital to another because I was going to pick up some supplies from a, a sister hospital. I'm driving through an industrial area to get there, and I look. I, this time I'm in North Los Angeles, and I look and I see this big stone sign outside of a big industrial building, and it says EMI uh, Music Distribution North America. And so I was like, wow. Rushed to get what I had to get at the hospital, and I came back, and I said, screw it. I mean, I was in scrubs. I had a mask around my neck. Yeah. And um, I went inside, and I applied, not realizing that that's not how you get in to that business. But I always knew. I studied about it. I read books about it. I mean, as a teen, as a, a, so a sophomore, junior, or senior in high school, I was just reading everything I could get my hands on to understand that business. Mm. And um, I didn't understand how you got in. I just understood that I wanted to be there. So when I went in, I asked for an application, not realizing that's not how you get in. But being a California business, they had to have, by law, they had to have applications. And so I filled one out blindly, just did it. Long story short, within a month and a half, I was at 19 going on 20, I ended up being the executive assistant to the president of national distribution, which was a female at the time, not realizing why she hired me. It wasn't because I was the best at administration, even though I kicked ass. I ran her office. <laughs> like, it was nobody's business. I mean, I was no, so no. I was like, hey, I'm in. I'm in. And I wasn't going to let anything sidetrack me. From that, I went on to labels. I he headed labels. Uh, I was at EMI Records America when EMI Records America was still here in, in the United States. Now it's just back in the UK or in all over Europe, but it's not here anymore. Doing marketing and promotions with the Capitol Records, marketing and promotions, eventually in A&R. Priority Records, which is a hip-hop label. Yep. Yep. Owned, by, owned by Capital, you know, Ice Cube and all that stuff. Um, there I was national, associate national director of A&R in my 20s. I was an executive at a record label by the time I was 21 years old. Wow. This is weird. But, you know, in that industry, it's, it's common. It, it was common. And then I, I, I ended up going to a label that eventually got hit by a merger. It was a subsidiary under um, Universal Music Group actually subsidiary under MCA. It was uh, Silas Records. And it had, it was an R&B label. And it had, you know, people like Shantae Moore, Aaron Hall, Jesse Powell, who were you know, really popular back then. Seagram's of Canada ended up purchasing Universal Music Group. So there was a huge merger. From there, I was offered a position in MCA I didn't want to take. Because it was kind of going backwards. They wanted to give me a position heading urban... Um, marketing and promotions and I didn't want to do that and so at the time I was dating somebody on a sitcom and I was always the sitcom filmed every Thursday and for people who have never been to a sitcom taping the way that they film sitcoms or tapes sitcoms is they, they take once in the morning and then they tape the exact same show at night and then they take the best of those two tapings and that's how you get a show okay. and so I was there every Thursday night it was the last season of this particular show, and which I, 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 won't, I won't name. And the executive producer of the show was a huge record executive. He was the president or the former president of 
one of the major, major record labels. And this was his show. And he had since then opened a massive artist management firm. He was a huge artist manager. And so I knew him and he had asked me what I was going to do after the merger. And I told him what I was offered and I didn't want to do it. So maybe I would just shop myself as a DNR somewhere else. Asked me if I thought that I would be interested in artist management. And I was not. In fact, it, it just was, in my mind, it was like suicide. It's like I knew what artist managers went through and I just wasn't going to do it. No, thanks. Sure. And yeah. And he says, I need someone to come and run the music division at his management firm. Am I interested? And, but I would have to then also co-manage the artists that he was personally handling. And the artists that he was personally handling were for the world's top recording artists at the time. And I was like, there's no way I'm going to do that. I'm not going to babysit artists, especially on that, of that caliber. Oh, sure. I'm not going to do it. The offer was extended for a few days. Uh, you know, you're not in my office by this coming Monday. You know, then forget it. You know, thank you, but I'm not interested. And over the weekend, I, I got called every name by every person I knew. I'm a dummy. I'm an idiot if I don't take this job. Stupidest thing I've ever heard, Tone. You, if you don't take this, you're a dummy. And so I ended up showing up on Monday, and that led me into an almost seven-year stint with that company. And then subsequently after that with my own management firm that I stupidly launched because I don't know why I continued to manage artists. Uh, because I was seated in the industry now as an artist manager who had a lot of uh, clout and that I could get in wherever I wanted to get in. So I figured I might as well just perpetuate it and open my own firm because I didn't want to be at the firm I was at anymore. There was just a lot of clashing going on. So I, I opened my own firm, and about seven years, almost eight years after that, I got tired of babysitting recording artists, with, even with my own firm. I really just get tired of it. I had some pretty no notable artists. I really was focusing on myself as a songwriter and a producer. I had already been published you know, quite a few times. I'd had some successes. I'd had, I'd had some things that were successes in terms of status, but that I was very badly stabbed in the back about you know, losing a lot of money. And so I stopped managing artists and I conformed or not conformed, but I transformed my, my management firm into a production company, which is now music reviews. Look at any of my logos online or stuff. It's music life enterprises limited. And that is my production company. And I've just been writing and producing um, ever since. And that's about awesome. It. Awesome. Yeah. I love it. Well, first of all, thank you for sharing that. Cause I know that uh, I'm I love hearing stuff like that, but I also like, like you said, that you know, I think it's to everyone's own discretion what they want to open up themselves to in terms of you know people who don't know and that sort of thing. So I appreciate you sharing that. But one thing within that is, you know, I, I alluded to it earlier. The gold. You know, so you're you're a contributing editor to Goldmine, also, right? And uh, you know, and obviously people who collect records. I mean, Goldmine is synonymous. I mean, it's it, is it the oldest? Collecting that because it's it's got a long history like within the, the hobby. Yeah, so even Rolling Stone back then had sections for collecting, where Rolling Stone was more focused on industry news and slightly about you know putting ads in for records and stuff like that. And Goldmine was just the opposite; it was more focused on the collector and then some industry news. Rolling Stone launched in '67, and Goldmine launched in 1974. 
Mm. It's A, they're the two longest living music publications in the world. What I mean, I mean, you know, Cream is back and Cream is older than Goldmine, but Cream went away for, you know, 20 uh, Yeah, it hasn't been consecutive. Yeah, exactly. It's, it's, it's a rebirth or a rebrand or what have you. But, gold, but Goldmine's been around. I mean, there's been Goldmine, no interruption. It, it's perpetuated continuously and it's just, it's never declined. It's never lessened itself. It's always grown and grown and grown and grown. And it's remained faithful to music, where Rolling Stone, and I'm not ashamed to say it, I've written for Rolling Stone once, I'll never do it again. Rolling Stone is a fucking political rag. That's all it is. It's, it's an absolute political rag, and it's, it's, it's become a joke sure. in, 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 in regards to music. No, in the same way that MTV became a joke in regards to music, Rolling Stone is the MTV of publications. That's fair. That's fair criticism for sure. Yeah, absolutely. It's 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 garbage. Absolutely garbage. <laughs> I wish it wasn't because it was a great magazine. Well, definitely, definitely. It was an absolute fantastic magazine. It's the biggest music magazine in the world. It's in multitude of countries, published in multitudes of languages. Yep. And kudos for that. But you're not a music magazine anymore. You you like a pop culture magazine, if anything, right? Pop culture magazine. And you moonlight as a political rag, but that just kind of puts a big stain on the magazine, in my opinion, as huh. a music fan. Not as an industry person, but as a fan. Goldmine has never done that. It it is always been consistent with being 100% music-based. And the cool thing about Goldmine is it brought in a, a, a lot of, of freelance writers, a lot of feature writers that aren't technically part of the magazine, but they're just they're just freelance feature writers. And then there's staff, which are staff writers and then contributing editors. Staff writers are writers that are on staff that the editor-in-chief says, hey, we need to write about this. I'm giving it to you. Contributing editor, which there's a small handful of them, can write whatever they want, and it's not questioned. But what the editor, Patrick Prince, has done, or the editor-in-chief, is he's brought on a super diverse collection of contributing editors. Now, especially with my columns, not only write about classic artists, classic rock, classic soul, jazz, blah, 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 but have brought in writers to write about current artists. So that it's not just the old stuff that we're reading about, it's the majority of the magazine, but now there's information and there's publishing of things that are, are current, current artists. Hip-hop. They brought me in to write about hip-hop. They brought me in to write about modern soul. They brought me in to write about a niche that the magazine was based off of, and that is record collecting. Yeah, because you have, if, if, and correct me if I'm wrong, so you have, a, you have two bi-weekly columns. You have one called The Tone of Soul, exactly kind of what you're talking about. Then also, Adventures of a Music Collector. So you're hitting, like, it sounds like two areas that, that Goldmine really needed a little bit of elevation or uh, observation, right? Well, there was nothing really being fo focused on when it came to urban music. And so The Tone of Soul was established to write about anything urban-based, soul, and it, not just modern, everything soul, because the magazine had always lacked in that genre, in black music. I hate saying black because technically rock is black music. 
It's based all off black music. Yeah, rhythm and blues. Yep, yep, yep. If you want to get technical, the first rock artists were Little Richard, Ike Turner, and Chuck okay. Berry. It's black music. It's all, I mean, blues rock is all black music. They're all, and they don't, it was never hidden. They loved calling themselves following after black artists. But nevertheless, there's genres, and genres are more, they attract one race or another. The magazine was uh, lacking a lot in soul or in urban music. Uh, or black music, whatever you want to call it. And so I was brought in to write about classic soul, modern soul, different genres. Um, album reviews in that genre, uh, anything that pertains to that. Trying to build up hip-hop and mostly focusing on real hip-hop. Not the You'll never see the magazine publish anything about any of most of the modern artists today because it's just not hip-hop. There's a great handful of modern hip-hop artists that I will definitely be highlighting that stay true to the form sure. to this day. Um, new artists that stay true to the form, those artists will absolutely be getting exposed. But um, And then Adventures of a Music Collector was to talk about anything and everything that interests the music collecting lifestyle. And that's what that is. Yeah, I mean, some of the pieces I've read, I've, I've read samples of both columns, right? And and in, in terms of some of my favorite stuff, like you just re you do you do some review pieces too. Like you, you just recently reviewed the uh, what was it the uh, the Watts the Watt Stacks box set that just came out from Kraft. Uh, you you reviewed the Michael Jackson MoFi Thriller a few months ago, um, and, and even you know like one column I like that you did was ways of uncovering different ways to discover new music. Where you're talking about discovering new music because twenty years ago. I was big into new music and, and going to the nether regions of the internet. And that's still an option through YouTube, but you listed out a lot of very similar to how we began this conversation of sharing information. And I think these columns are an extension of that. And one, one thing that some folks in the audience may know is back in October, well, even before that, you started planning, but you had an article about why the vinyl, why the YouTube vinyl community is music collecting's heartbeat, which kind of, is a direct connection to what we started this conversation with, which was being inclusive, shedding light on the vinyl community on YouTube, all these kind of things. And I think that that particular piece, and, and you, full disclosure, you did ask me to submit a photo with many others. I mean, there was a litany of folks, Brandon, and we talked about before, and, and, and even some channels I wasn't even familiar with that helped elevate their profile or at least awareness that I then went and discovered some new channels there. So, so one, thank you for doing that. But two, I think it's it speaks to you in terms of that connection that we were talking about about the YouTube piece in the beginning. That this is another way to facilitate that kind of exposure and also that connective piece. So it's it's really cool that you're doing that for Goldmine. Did that for Goldmine and that piece for the community and, and and so forth. Well, I did that piece because the vinyl community is probably the most important entity that fed the resurgence of vinyl record production. I really honestly and truly believe that without the VC, and I mean, I mean this without any shadow of a doubt, not blowing smoke at all, if it wasn't for the vinyl community, the chances of the industry seeing the lucrative possibilities of really going full force in, in, in vinyl record production again would have probably, maybe maybe it would have happened, maybe not. But I can guarantee you one thing, that the vinyl community was the biggest catalyst 
for gasoline on the fire, no doubt. Yep, one hundred percent. I agree with uh, that. Because there's nowhere in the world, not with any music publication, not even with a publication, not even with publication being also having a, a massive online presence, which Goldmine does, which Rolling Stone does, Mojo does, things like that. Um, Record Collector UK, you know, things like that. Shindig is e is even decent, but not even with any of those things combined physical publications and online presence, could they have even initiated anything like the vinyl community? Because the vinyl community, it's so massively viral. It was so massively viral that the industry had no choice but to recognize it, had no choice but to act upon it. And there's good and bad out of that. I mean, I remember, and I hope I'm not getting off track, but I remember when Record Store Day first launched. I was so excited about it. And because of that camaraderie, because it was just a day to be there and yep. be around other collectors the same way that we're around other collectors online with the VC. There's that chance to really just an honor because I've always been a champion for the independent record store, um, especially those stores that never went away. They perpetuated themselves through a dead spot that was almost, it was like, how did you last? And it was because they did whatever they could to continue to attract people who wanted to collect vinyl, and they stayed around. And I, I think that's another entity that without the independent record store, we would just die. It's the spirit of collecting. Yes. And they, they deserve to be honored because that's what really has kept all of this alive. Music stores, record stores is what has kept us alive for decades and decades and decades. Anyway, getting back to um, the VC, uh, even when... Record store they started, which I was very happy about. I even saw now it's it's, and I'm going to say now, I'm the biggest proponent against it. Mm. Every year that it happens, I'll post shit to totally denounce it. Like, and it, you, you can call me a dick, you can call me the devil. I don't care what you call me, but record store day is the biggest travesty now towards record store owners. Serves them not. Mm. It serves the major music conglomerates. And I fault Record Store Day for that because they they fell for the bait. The record store conglomerates saw what the VC was perpetuating, and then they saw the birth of Record Store Day, and they totally exploited it. And Record Store Day could have said, no, we're not going to do that. But they saw dollar signs, and that's all that mattered. I know a billion record store owners. And I don't care what any record store owner says. Oh, no, it's good for the store. No, it's not. You lose money. You lose, you lose, you lose. You can't participate in it if you're not spending X amount of dollars. It's absolute communism in regards to the music collecting world. It's, it's exactly what communism is to politics and society as is to music collecting because it's just not beneficial to the independent record store where it was supposed to be in the beginning. And because of the VC and the popularity, um, that's the one negative thing. The major, the major music you know, conglomerates, they, they, they took advantage of that. They turned it to their financial advantage. Yeah, I think that's a fair criticism, namely because exactly what you're talking about. Ten years ago, 
it felt more communal and now it feels more transactional. Right. And so I think that's we stand in, exactly what we're talking about. We stand on or I don't do it anymore. It's not to say that I don't like uh, RC product. I love RC product. Sure. Sure. But I, I'm not going to contribute to it. Um, I do, I, I do go in, I do go to record store day. I don't stand in line because I'm there to, I'll go and spend any money that I was going to spend on RSD. I spend it on used records mm. and product in the store. Um, that's what I do because that's where they make their money. That's right. Um, used, took on used product. Yep. Absolutely. And I, I encourage people. I fly a banner every record store day. I fly a banner on all my social media that says, if you're going to support Record Store Day, set aside some of your budget to spend on, on used records. I'm not saying don't go and support Record Store Day. Go, if that's what, what you want to do, I'm not denouncing anyone for it. Great. But save some of your Record Store Day product money for other products. Make it a balance because that really helps out your independent record store. Um, but it, it, it's a cattle call. You stand in line like you're <laughs> yeah. being prodded. You're being prodded like cattle. You go in like a mindless robot you grab your stuff and then they ask you out unless you want to stand around and spend money on other things but you've already blown your wad yeah yeah good and so you leave mm-hmm. that, that doesn't benefit the record stores because they work their asses off man oh for sure for sure they work their butts off to be prepared they spend so much money and they rarely ever recoup any of all, Tom, all of yeah. them they, they just don't Tom. they just don't but Tom. I, the, the review has been great for everything else, but I think it's the thing that I'll also encourage the the, the conglomerates to take advantage of like For sure. Well, Tom, I could I could keep talking to you for a long time. I really enjoy this conversation. Hopefully, you've enjoyed it too. Um, for, for for the sake of time, we'll go ahead and wind it down. But sincere, sincere, sincere. Thank you for taking this time, sharing part of your story because I I know before we, we we talked a little bit about this and. I know there's some apprehension about sharing some of your professional side, so I appreciate you taking the viewer or the listeners to on this journey, but also like educating me too on a lot of the stuff you've been through. But also, goldmine. I mean, we said this at the beginning, and we're even saying it here at the end: is is the, the connection and and connecting with like mine collectors. It's the best part of this whole deal, and so that's brought me to get to know you better, and 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 I'm very thankful for that. Yeah, I, I appreciate you, man. I love I love that you're doing this. I love that you're doing this, and I think that your format's awesome. I will say two things just really quickly. Yeah, of course. Uh, I'm just going to mention them, and I'm going to leave it at that, and I'm going to let them manifest so everyone can enjoy it. Um, stay tuned for Goldmine TV. Interesting. Okay. We're working out the uh, details with the magazine, uh, Project and Media, which is the, public, the publishing company that owns Goldmine. Working out Goldmine TV. Uh, it will be based. It will be YouTube based. Nice. It's going to be phenomenal. It's going to be like nothing you guys have ever seen. And then also, um, if anyone's ever watched my channel, I started a series a while ago um, called Record Store Spotlight, where I do a point yes. of view. Yeah, I had a note. I, I wanted to touch on it. It's such an awesome series. I do a point of view series where I, I introduce a record store because again, I'm, I'm a champion for the independent record store. Introduce a record store. I do a point of view walkthrough. I interview um, in, in, in point of view form, like you like you're there with me. Uh, talk to the managers, talk to the owners, talk about the shop, and then I go back to the studio and talk about what I picked up. Um, I've kind of slacked off on that, not on purpose, uh, because Record Store Spotlight has been all, all of the original episodes are being 
re-edited um, with the new branding. Um, I have a lot of episodes in the can. Um, just and it's going to have its own channel. Oh, cool, real cool. So we're going to have Record Store Spotlight channel. The channel's already up. It's just it's private now until I get everything up uploaded. Um, and there's going to be a lot of traveling, a lot of tra traveling. Love it. And I have a series coming on called Extended Edition, where we'll talk about the deep history of some record stores that are very notable and have a really deep history. And then there's a special edition called Celebrity Edition, where I, where I will have some of your favorite sports figures, actors, uh, recording artists walking through with me and then talking oh, about the yeah. records that we pick up after after the, the point of view part of the show. So, and I have a slew, I'll just name a few people who are going to be doing it with me. Uh, uh, Fido De La Para from Canned Heat is going to be doing it with me. Uh, Kendra Morris is going to be doing it with me. David Lee Roth is going to be doing wow. it Wow. Um, uh, Mike Inez from Allison Chains is going to be doing it with me. Uh, who else is going to be doing it with me? A few actors that I know. So it's, it's, it's going to be, it's going to be cool. Oh, it's going to be cool. And the reason why it's getting its own channel, and the channel will be monetized. I don't monetize my channel. The channel will be heavily monetized. And the reason is, is because I have just obtained, finally, the trademark and the copyright to something called iHeart Record Stores. Interesting. And it's going to greatly benefit where Record Store Day lost it, iHeart Record Store is going to be picking up the ball. And I have I have hundreds of record stores already behind this project. Hundreds of record stores all across the country behind the project. So look out for those things, and uh, it's, it's going to be super cool stuff. Super cool and stuff. Been in the game for 20-plus, and you're still coming up with new stuff, man. I love it. I absolutely love it. It's exciting you, stuff. I appreciate yeah. you sharing it here. You have to when you die. <laughs> <laughs> Adapt or die. That's right. Mark Parker, Nike. Yep, yep. Yeah. Love it. Well, again, Tom, thanks for the time, man. I really appreciate it, and and uh, hope maybe we can do this again another time. We can talk on some other topics because I love picking your brain. I'm I'm at your disposal. I love what you're doing, bro. Perfect. Appreciate you. All right, we're gonna wrap it up. Thanks for tuning into another Vinyl Community Podcasts episode. And that was another trip around the turntable. Thanks for listening to Vinyl Community Podcasts. <laughs>